Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. This month on Improbable Developments, we are speaking with Dr. Stanley Crook, the founder, chief executive officer, and chairman of the Enlorum Foundation. He's also the founder and executive chairman of the board of directors for Ionis Pharmaceuticals. He is a pioneer in RNA-targeted antisense therapeutics. Prior to founding Ionis, Dr. Crook was the head of R&D at SmithKline and later assumed responsibility for worldwide R&D at SmithKline Beckman. Has led the development of more than 20 marketed drugs and supported the creation and growth of several companies. Thank you so much for your time, sir, and for joining us today on Improbable Developments. Well, I'm very happy to be here and look forward to chatting about Enlorm. Excellent. Yeah, so it's a relatively new foundation, and it's focused on finding, developing, and providing drugs to people who are in the ultra-rare category. Um, you know, so less than 10 people or a couple dozen people in the world, and you're providing those drugs for free. I, my first question is, why does something like Enlorum even need to exist? The uh, patient with, the, with an ultra-rare mutation, a disease caused by an ultra-rare mutation, presents a set of challenges that are really quite unique, and both micro and macro scale challenges. On the micro scale level, of course, in many cases, we have a single patient with that a single mutation that, that exists only in that patient. And if you think through how one would provide a, a medicine to that patient, you can see it's essentially impossible to even think about finding a drug and getting it approved commercially to treat that patient. It, it, it is literally impossible to conduct a, a, an appropriate clinical trial. And even if you extrapolate to the largest population that we'll consider, which is about 30, uh, 30 people with the exact same mutation identified in the world, generally because of the delays in getting these people diagnosed and many other issues, they present at varying stages of the disease. They're spread around the world. They're rarely clustered because most of these are de novo mutations. And so even there, it would be essentially impossible to conduct a trial that, uh, that would meet the standards of approval at the FDA and in other jurisdictions. So well, that, that is the core problem. And yet we now know that there are many millions of these patients, and that number grows as more genomes are sequenced. And so if you're going to meet the needs of an individual patient, you need a personalized medicine that's made for that patient only. And if you want to try to make a dent in the, the overall scale of the problem, 
then you need a technology and an ability uh, that, that can be scaled up to help as many of these people as we can. So NLORM fills that void. NLORM is the first and only foundation focused on providing immediate hope and rapid treatment for at least a fraction of these patients. We can't help everyone, but our focus is on the patients we can help. I think that's fantastic. What a, a great driving purpose. All my time in pharma, when I was there, I always felt like we're doing something important. When I read your website and listened to your videos, I thought, now here's something even more important. It's just fantastic. So let's go back a bit, though. I want to know how you got here. What was your career arc before you came to Enlorum? Because it's very important to the story, I think. Uh, completed an MD, PhD program and a residency at uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. My PhD thesis was, in fact, on RNA. I sort of condensed a lot in a few years, and so I was actually on the faculty while I was finishing my MD and residency and was actually ready to be promoted to associate professor when I finished my residency. As a student, um, we had a patient who was referred to us who had a mass in his abdomen, and uh, as it happened, it turned out to be a disseminated testicular cancer, which the most, used to be the most common solid tumor that killed young men. Uh, I was one of the people that had to tell that young man who was actually my age that he had about six months to live. And we offered him an experimental drug called bleomycin, and I became fascinated with that drug. Ultimately, went to Bristol uh, so I could work on that drug. And assuming that they had a cancer program, which they didn't. <laughs> and so I got the opportunity to build there the, the first broadly focused, successful anti-cancer program in the industry. You can believe it. In those days, people said that you couldn't make money selling cancer drugs. And uh, I put uh, nine anti-cancer drugs on the market, or my team did, in those five years. And then I was recruited to run R&D at, uh, at the company now called GSK, a couple of mergers later. And, and as president of R&D, I restructured R&D worldwide, brought it into the, into the modern uh, scientific era. And once again, you know, we advanced a good many drugs to, to the market. But certainly by 1985, I concluded and actually wrote that the industry was dying and that prices would continue to go up unless we invested more in novel drug discovery technologies that could be more efficient. Ultimately, I decided then to found IONIS because I uh, believed that, that if, if we could make RNA-targeted drug discovery successful, it would be dramatically more efficient than it is. I like to tell the story that when I was raising our venture capital round, if you can imagine, $5.2 million was a lot of money in those days. Uh, I told uh, venture investors that nothing was known about technology, that the probability of success was essentially zero, and it would be 20 years and $2 billion before I knew, would you like to invest? And uh, somehow they did. And it turned out about, that was about right. Mm -hmm. and so uh, it, very much I'm here because I'm committed to helping patients. First, foremost, every single minute of every single day from the first moment I 
interacted with the patient. I knew that's why I was here. And I felt I could do a much better job if I could turn this idea of antisense technology into reality. And fortunately, we were, we were able to do that. About 25 years later and something like $10 billion later. Uh, but Could you explain antisense technology? So, you know, that most of the drugs that you take are designed to bind to proteins. Proteins do the work of the cell. They're designed to alter the function of a protein or another. The problem with the technology is it has changed essentially not at all in any fundamental way in about 120 years. And so we still don't know the rule. And that's why it's so inefficient. And there's an old adage in the industry that's called change a methyl, change the drug. Methyl is the smallest organic sort of molecule that you can, you can make. And so what that says is even the slightest change in a small molecule means you have no idea how that drug's going to behave. So with RNA-targeted drug discovery, and antisense is a very broad term for that, what we do is we take genetic information directly and convert that into genetically alike medicines. So the genetic code is actually beautifully simple, just four letters and any combination of three specifies instructions to make a particular protein. So it's a simple code uh, and it's understood. And so uh, we have to chemically modify these little short pieces of genetic information. Uh, and that took a while to build all that. So these are chemically modified pieces of genetic information that target very specifically the RNA, which is the intermediate between your DNA and the protein. And we can do a variety of things with that RNA to change its function. And that presents or alters the production of a disease-causing protein. So it is simpler. The rules are understood. We've created a, a really broad-based technology that has advanced the chemistry and continues to advance the chemistry and biology and pharmacology as we speak. And so it's a technology that is vastly more efficient. There are no undruggable targets for us. In, in the industry, most of the things you'd like to work on are not druggable with small molecules for a variety of reasons. It's fantastic. I mean, it's a it's one of those leaps in technology that when I came out of my undergrad and they were talking about, we're going to start to manipulate this. I think it was right about the time that you were saying, I want to go to a different company and do this and focus on the RNA. But back then it was just, it was a lot of hopes and dreams. As you said, we don't know if it's going to work. It's going to cost 2 billion to get there. You want to sign up, you know, it was uh, to see it where it is now. And I think people are more familiar with RNA just because of the COVID and the vaccines coming through. This is the opposite. It's turning the RNA off, basically, in the simplest term. Fantastic, fantastic idea. And as you say, everything's druggable now. It's been a great journey. Uh, and, and, you know, the first federally funded research program, most people don't know this, was, was funded by Jefferson. And it was the Lewis and Clark expedition. And he coined a term for that that I've loved ever since I first learned it, core of discovery. Uh, and I think what IONIS was, was the core of discovery of how to use the RNA world 
to make people healthier. And armed with that then, it was apparent to me that it was in principle capable of, of being efficient enough, cost-effective enough, and versatile enough that we could actually tack some, tackle some of these end of one patients, make a personalized medicine for an individual patient and do it fast enough and cheap enough that we could even think about giving it away. I found that really unbelievable. I've been involved in the drug discovery and development industry for a lifetime now. I never dreamt, never in my wildest dream that there would ever be a technology capable of doing what we're actually doing every day at Inform. Were you thinking of that, that N of one problem back in the late eighties, or that's what you've been thinking about since the technology has matured? No, I wasn't thinking about it. None of us were, none of us knew it. The fact that we know that there are unique mutations like these is, is all new information that been garnered since the genomic revolution, which of course is not a revolution. It began in 1954 with Watson and Crick. But like most things in science, the revolution happens in stages and after lots of hard work. So you have this combination of uh, technologies that are the product of decades of investment that allow us to understand that these patients exist. You were successful at Ionis. Ionis got some products out there. What were the events that, that led you to form Enlorum? Uh, I can actually pinpoint almost the date. It was about four years ago, a little more than four years ago now. And the key event was I realized that uh, given the advances in genomics, the information telling us that these N of one type patients exist was being developed. And not only that, as they were being sequenced, of course, that taught us what the cause of the disease was, which then is a, a target that we can work on. And I realized that the technology that we had developed was in principle capable of doing that. So it really is a tale of long-term investment in technologies that put us here today. The genomic investment that leads to the information we need to know that these patients actually exist and to identify the problem that they have at the genetic level so we can address it. And then the technology that we created at Iona. Knowing that in principle it was possible, uh, the question for me then became uh, very different. It was no longer should I, but rather, is there any way I could not? It is a moral imperative for me to help patients if I can. And so then I had to sort out whether there was some solution that, uh, to a commercial model that might be uh, achievable, uh, because we, we know how to use the commercial model, and no one has ever even dreamt of trying to create a charitable model where you give medicines away. But it was clear that that wouldn't work. Then I wanted to make sure that I would have the access I needed to both the the genetic information, the clinical information, and invest a set of investigators who could manage these patients while receiving an experimental ASO and institutions that were appropriate. And so I was introduced to an organization called the Young Diagnosed Disease Network, or UDN. The UDN is a consortium of medical centers in America that have tackled actually getting these patients diagnosed and characterized. Remember that these patients have gone undiagnosed and died, never knowing what the cause of their problems were or their children's problems for centuries. 
And now today, we can identify them. But of course, the challenge for the UDN was they could identify the problem that the patient had, but then they had to tell the patient there was no treatment and it was unlikely there ever would be. So I developed collaboration with the UDN to assure that we have access to all that we need. And then finally, I spent uh, most of 2019 in discussions with the leaders of the drug division at the FDA to make sure that the regulatory system was supportive of doing this. And I was pleased that the FDA responded very positively and, and constructively. And so with all that then, uh, the next task was just to put it together. And fortunately, uh, IONIS is our major collaboration. Without IONIS, we couldn't do this. Uh, and uh, IONIS has donated about uh, $2.8 million. And our strategic partner, Biogen, in the neurosciences, has also participated extensively and donated similar amounts of money. And my wife and I have given $3.2 million. And so that got us underway. And I'm gratified by the progress. It's been rather extraordinary and gratified by the response. Even in a year in which uh, everyone was dealing with COVID-19, uh, many new donors, a large number of new collaborators uh, to help us do this. So it's been a, a great year and maybe a few months. We're only, uh, I founded in Lorem in uh, January of, of uh, last year. So we're just about a year and three months or four months old. It is very impressive how you were able to muster the support you needed, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. The momentum you have gained is fantastic. I'm curious, if a newly diagnosed patient just found out their specific mutation, how does Enlorum work with the patients and the families? What exactly is the process? I think the simplest way to think of Enlorm is we're a bridge now, between the need, which is the patient who's been appropriately characterized, and an investigator who, who can manage an investigator-initiated clinical trial, and then the engine that we built uh, for treatment and hope at Iona. So uh, a, a patient or parent who has a, a child who is thought to be an end of one kind of child or patient simply goes to the website and works with a research investigator, picks both because we require a great deal of information and fills out an application. And we've established, I think one of the most important things is to assure that while we are doing, you know, very minimal work preclinically, that the work we do is of the highest quality and that we discover the best ASO possible. And, and so we have quality systems that assure first that the risk-benefit decision is made with the, the appropriate advice. These are complicated patients. They're usually very advanced because it takes time. You know, these people are it's hard when you're the only person in the world who's ever had a mutation like this to actually get to a tertiary care center where somebody could sequence the genome. So they're usually advanced. They're often very, well, they're always very sick. And many, uh, unfortunately, are progressing rapidly to death. So we have a committee that we've developed called the Access to Treatment Committee. It's made up of experts uh, in all the disease areas that we deal with, genetics, uh, uh, and of course, the technology, clinical trial management, 
uh, bioethics and the like. And so the case then is presented to the access to treatment committee. Typically we ask that the in, uh, investigator uh, who submitted the application join us in that presentation. If the ATTC is uh, supportive of doing it, then I make the final decision and we initiate then the efforts to discover and develop the, the medicine and pay for that activity to take place at IONIS and a number of contract research organizations that do toxicity studies for us, manufacture and a variety of other things. And then we help the investigator put an IND together. And then we, uh, of course, um, uh, help the investigator manage that, that patient. Importantly, we've also uh, created novel approaches to understanding whether we're producing benefit or not. What we do when we are ready to consider uh, making the uh, discovering the ASO is we work with the investigator to identify primary treatment goal, secondary treatment goals, and exploratory treatment goals, and the clinical measures that we will use uh, to, to measure the effect of the medicine. And that's patient by patient. Each patient gets a personalized clinical plan trial. And then during the 10 months to a year that it takes to you know, get the ASO ready to treat the patient, we ask the investigator and patient or parent to conduct a detailed natural history of study during that period of time, consistent with good medical care, focused points that we're going to measure. And then we can compare one year of treatment to one year of, of immediate pretreatment symptoms. And we can use that to uh, know whether we're helping the patient. And then we plan to publish the aggregate experience every year in a peer-reviewed journal, share all that information with investigators <laughs> and patient meetings. And so, uh, because I think we owe these patients a commitment to learn as much from each patient and in the aggregate experience. And it's a great deal to learn. I mean, just an extraordinary opportunity to learn. So that's the way it works. Uh, a little more uh, wordy and a little more complex than I probably should have been. but. I think it's very important for the people listening to this to know that these medicines are complex and they may sound simple, they're not. And it's really important that, that, that the very best ASO is discovered and that the ASO that's administered is of the very highest quality and that there is a commitment to quality, learning from each patient, and being careful about how. The performance of each is, is evaluated that Enlorm has has developed. Uh, today, we're the only organization who that's able to even consider treating these patients. But our goal is uh, to set a model and a pathway that others can follow in the future, and that's where the real leverage. So you are doing this for one technology today. But once you have established a charitable model for other technologies, it really opens up the possibilities for those patients. We can treat, uh, you know, at Enlorum over time, I'm sure we'll be able to treat thousands, thousands of patients, but there are millions of patients. And so we have limitations uh, in, you know, all technologies have some limitations. So I think of us as, as core discovery for the end of one patient and setting standards that others can also follow. Um, and uh, we can't do it alone, absolutely cannot. 
And so one of our major goals is to create a network of collaboration with all the stakeholders. And we have made great progress in the first year. Uh, we have collaborations with all of the contract research organizations that do animal toxicology studies for us, and that's the major cause. Uh, we have relationships with contract manufacturers, and we'll add more. We have relationships with Illumina and other sequencing or, or, or companies. So if we need extra genomic sequencing, we can get that done. Uh, other additional biotech companies that are supporting us. And so it's that collaboration that then has allowed us to reduce cost per patient by 40% in our first year, and the costs to begin with are very low. And, and But we know we just started. And so as I look out mm -hmm. to the future, uh, we'll have a vast network of collaborators and donors. We'll be scaled up to treat uh, thousands of patients uh, for free, for life, and we will have established a pathway for others to follow when other technologies and, and perhaps other ASO companies uh, are ready to tackle the, the needs of these patients. So I think that's where the long-term leverage comes from. And I think another place that I'm really focused is using the, the fact that there is potential treatment to shine a really bright light on the needs of these patients and move uh, the, the entire medical field forward so that in the future, these patients will be identified much earlier in the course of the I think long-term, the only solution here is that we add genomic sequencing to newborn screening. And, and so we began then, we would know if there's an ultra-rare mutation that the child has. And if the parents agreed, then that, that child could be followed to see whether they developed it or not. And as soon as the child does, then, then we'd be poised to help that patient rather than, I'll tell you a story. There was a set of parents who had their first child about uh, four years ago. Normal pregnancy, normal birth, happy, healthy baby. But in, you know, within a few months, the mother noticed that the baby wasn't developing as the book would suggest she should. And a pediatrician did the right. Well, there's a big broad band of developmental time and assured the mother that it was okay. But over time, the baby just didn't develop and wasn't thriving. And there began a very typical story, and it's a horrible, perilous odyssey. Um, they were referred from one specialist to the other and another and another and another without any answers. Ultimately, the baby was hospitalized and had two cardiac arrests at age three. Two cardiac arrests in a three-year-old. The oh. hospital was not equipped to handle that, and so the baby was sent to a, a, a tertiary care center. And sadly, the syndrome that the baby had is cocaine syndrome. It has a name, meaning it was, it was discovered a long time ago, in 1936. But it's extraordinarily rare tiny number of, of, of babies born every year with And cocaines is a progeria, rapid aging. So when the mother was asked what she would want for her baby, she said hope, and the father said just a little more. Anyway, 
we set out to make an ASO for the baby, and unfortunately, the baby progressed too rapid. And that, that's the story. That's the story that these families go through. Um, that they're heartbreaking stories. And they, and, and they face all this alone. There is no society if you're the only child or only person who has a mutation, and so you don't know what's going on. There's no one who seems interested or capable of helping. And so it's that whole set of challenges these patients present that we can't solve alone, but we can be the tip of the spear or a part of the tip of the spear that then moves the field along so that we can take advantage of all the technology we have to do something better for these patients and I'm committed to doing that. And we are going to do it. We won't fail. We are going to do it. Unfortunately, that type of story is all too common among patients with ultra-rare disorders. I can see how all the pieces are there. The promise is there. You have the UDN, the undiagnosed network, looking to find these patients. The technology for whole genome or at least whole exome sequencing at birth exists. And now you have a platform to rapidly develop the treatment these people need. How close are you to making this all a reality? The progress made in our first year was extraordinary, but it's just beginning. I mean, just scratch the surface. I thought when I founded NLARM that given COVID-19 and the novelty of what we were doing, we might receive four applications in our first year. We now have, uh, we're approaching 80 applications. It has limits. We can't fix some, if a patient has a mutation called a known mutation where they simply don't make the protein at all, that's something we can't fix. And we're focused only on five organs because those organs we know the best and we are confident that the ASOs are safe in them and we use low doses and so on. And their liver, kidney, bone marrow, I mean, liver, kidney, central nervous system, the lung, and, uh, and the eye. So we have limits, but even so, with 80 applications, and, you know, we're moving toward treating about a 30 of them, that's pretty good. And, and, and it's not the patients we can't help that I'm focused on, it's the patients we can't. I'm, I'm hopeful that that percentage will go up as new technologies join us in this, in this endeavor or, you know, they create your own institutions either way. And so, uh, you know, we're playing the, a short game, fix the patients we can today as quickly as we can, as well as we can, and fix the patients who we hope to help uh, in the future uh, by thinking longer. I think it's just a remarkable story, your story, you know, working, working through big pharma and all of that, and then coming down to, wait, there's a way to help these patients who, like that mother was asking, don't have hope. Um, she just wanted some hope or maybe a little time. You know, they have nothing. And as you said, they're, they're alone. They're lost. They're going against a system that, that doesn't budge in 120 years. And you've just you've, you've put something out there that's totally different. And I think the, the charitable model is something that we're really going to need to look at it and say, how do we do this? If precision medicine is going to work, we're going to need to be able to prove it in this extremely precise way. 
and then figure out maybe later, uh, you know, say the long term, maybe the commercial comes later. It, it may it may happen. It's very hard for me to imagine because I think you'd have to charge patients many millions of dollars a year. But I mean, to, if, if you could even commercialize. But I'll give the folks some even some additional good news. We expected most of our applications to come from institutions uh, associated with the UDN. Turns out less than half of our applications have come from the UDN institutions. And what that means is that many institutions across the country are focused on personalized medicine and identifying these end of one patients and at least getting them to the position where if there is a treatment, we, we, can, we can sort it out and then see if we can help these patients. It's not exactly what I intended to do in retirement, but it is what I have to do. I do think it can be sustainable. You know, we, we have to prove that. Yet. That is, we have to raise money. And we, in the last year, uh, we did not raise, uh, we didn't seek donations actively. Later this fall, we'll actually begin out, you know, start raising money actively. And the reason I didn't is I wanted to make sure this could work before I took anybody else's money. But even without that, we've added more than 20, 30 new donors, several millions of dollars in pledges. And so I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to raise the money we need to scale up and meet as many of these big needs as possible here and I do invite uh, all the people who are on this podcast um, to think of us if you if you know a patient if, if you if, if you think that you can do something to help these patients through and more uh, in, uh, the door's wide open fantastic I just want to thank you once again for your time, your energy, and all that you are doing. You are changing the lives of ultra-rare patients and the way we develop medicine. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure, and I'm happy to talk with you about what is very much a labor of love. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends to give us a listen.